Hello, and welcome to the Extension Experience Podcast with your hosts, Josh Bouchong, Trent Malachik, and Dana Zook. Here you'll find insights into Oklahoma agriculture from West Area Specialists employed by Oklahoma State University Extension. Their perspectives come from assisting county educators and producers in the areas of agronomy, animal science, and economics. Thank you for joining us. Welcome back to another episode of the Extension Experience Podcast. My name is Trent Malachik. Josh Bashong. I'm Dana Zook. Josh, we have a guest today. I don't know, she's way smarter than me, so I hope this makes it a very good episode. You guys are going to talk about some small grain weed control, I think. So I'll let you take it away from there and, and introduce our guest. Yes, we're blessed with uh, Dr. Misha Cherry, our small grains weed scientist, uh, on campus there and she does a lot with her obviously wheat but other small grains and even canola so Misha when did you start at OSU? I am just coming up this is my fifth year teaching but I started right away teaching so really I've been here for four years four full yeah. years summer of 16 I started. And I know you've been to multiple campuses with some brief bio of yourself. Um, I'm a city girl. I grew up in the suburbs of Seattle, pretty disconnected from agriculture and went to uh, Eastern Washington, the Palouse major wheat producing area for school. Started taking ag classes because I didn't know what I wanted to do and actually kind of hated college. And I uh, was just fascinated by weeds and stayed there and got my uh, master's. And then I did my PhD in weed science at Texas Tech and have kind of stayed in this region. Not a big jump from tech to OSU. I know when you came on, there's some things you obviously had to pick up and learn, but I think you've hit the ground running and done a lot of good projects for our Oklahoma uh, crop producers. Uh, What were some of the first projects you had going? Honestly, just getting getting back into wheat was a little bit of a learning curve. I worked in cotton, of course, in Lubbock. And uh, wheat production in Oklahoma, it to me still, even been here for a few years, it's really unique. It's unlike any other areas in the country. And so trying to learn and value the the diversity of wheat in Oklahoma, the animal component, what folks are willing to invest is always complex. And so I can't always just think about it as grain coming off the ground. And so I've, I've just been learning. Of course, our our winter annual grasses are our challenge. So focusing on those, trying to update what we know about herbicide resistance so we're not making applications that don't make sense and yeah i learn something new every day and it's it's fun that would be a huge change to move from the north northwest i'm getting this right (laughs) to come to i guess i would say the south in texas but we're not really south here but man i mean was that a really big change i mean I think culturally it would be a huge yes. difference. You are a thousand percent right. I would say for a whole year, I was kind of in culture shock. And now that I've been this way, 
and lived here, I don't really think I want to go live back home. Don't tell my family that, but um, I think, you know, where you've lived and what experiences you have does impact uh, your belief system and your opinions. And uh, one thing I love is the people. I think there are really good people that look out for one another. And for me, uh, yeah, there's, there's beautiful mountains and water in Seattle, but everything was so fast and you don't really look at people in the grocery store aisles and uh, say hi. And I, I like that connection. So yeah, but it, there were other things that were very challenging. So. That would be, that would be really cool. I've always wanted to visit that part of the country, but yeah. I would think, well, especially you were in agriculture and you came to agriculture and what's better than that? That's right. <laughs> Sorry, Josh. I had to jump in. I had to jump in. Oh, it was excellent. Okay. Trent might argue, but some people think, or people like Trent think growing wheat's easy. But <laughs> as you did, like you say, dig more into it. There's a lot of little intricacies that we often overlook that we may have grew up with here. But when you start looking at wheat, we have a wide range of wheat producers in Oklahoma, some that are more intensely managed and some that are more more of a cow poke, uh, mm-hmm. just so to say. But uh, so there's a wide range of guys and there's a little, like you said, a lot of intricacies about the wheat crop, some more intensely managed. Some of the guys that are grazing think that any of the weeds out there is just grazing potential, Dana might say. But yeah. uh, we know that stuff like cheats and bromes might not be the a higher quality forage compared to something like wheat. Mm-hmm. And so that's often some of the conversations I had with guys is, well, I don't really need to control them. They can graze it just the same as wheat. But as we start looking at some of those grasses, Misha, some of our go-tos, we've always relied heavily on ALS or SUs, uh, some for cheating bromes. What are your options? Yeah. So when the ALS herbicides came out several decades ago, we loved them and we used the heck out of them. So our ALS herbicides, our group two herbicides, common trade name products like Finesse and Ally, things that were really advantageous about those products is we apply them in really small amounts. You don't really have to store much of them on your shelf. They're cheap and they worked really well. And now most of our most problematic grass weeds have developed resistance We can still use our ALS products to control uh, some of our important broadleafs. Many of our grasses, like you mentioned, Josh, like Italian ryegrass and even some of our bromes. True cheat is a good example of a brome in Oklahoma that has evolved and has group two resistance to many active ingredients. We're kind of running out of options. There's not, um, there's not just five or six things you can pick and go ahead and apply. So what we're doing to manage some of our group two resistant weeds is making an investment early in the season on what we're calling a delayed pre-emergence herbicide products like Zidua, Anthem Flex. uh, Those both have the active ingredient pyroxysulfone in them. We're also using Axiom, which has been around a little bit longer And those are killing grasses as they're germinating. 
not everyone likes those products because you have to have a rainfall to incorporate them. So you have to be strategic and it can be frustrating. I think anyone who's killed a weed likes to see the weed emerge, spray something on it and then see it die. I do too. I love it. You have immediate <laughs> satisfaction and the whole pre-emergence story is kind of, okay, it kills it when it's coming up. Sometimes you see the carcass, sometimes you don't. Are you going to catch that rain? I thought for sure I was going to get rain at my house last night and I didn't. I mean, you're just, we don't know. So, and it's an investment. Most of those products we're looking at for just the product, about $16, 10 to $16 per acre. So that sounds very complicated. Is there something you can do besides the chemical thing? Like, is there any management changes that you could make? I mean, I mean, it's just like in animal science, like deworming, we have problems with resistance and uh, internal parasites. And so we kind of have to change it up. So what do they do on the crop side? Yeah, that's a great question. So we always talk about the chemicals first because those typically provide the fastest answer. And that's probably why we have developed resistance because we overuse the quick fixes. We don't like to invest in long-term strategies. We can do some things with manipulation of planning date. Of course, if you're looking for forage and I tell you delay your planning date, you're going to look at me like I know nothing. So if you have some flexibility and you think you're going to be taking your crop off for grain, you could look at a delay uh, for some species. Now, we talked about ryegrass, and yeah, maybe, maybe you can control that first flush, but you probably have another one coming in the spring. Weeds are incredibly adaptive to the crops that we've put in the ground. So rotation is a long-term strategy where we can work within a new system, perhaps in the summer, let that winter ground lie fallow or have a broadleaf in there. A reason why canola came in the state uh, was to clean up grassy weeds. So we have cultural practices, but it's not an answer within a few weeks or within a few months. And so typically we don't lean on those. So basically, Dana, you can't have your cake and eat it too. <laughs> well, I get it. I know. I answer those questions yeah. all the time. So yeah, yeah I mean, it, can... it all comes with a cost. You know, you've got to yeah. kind of give and take a little bit. And I see, that's kind of what I was thinking. Probably the rotation was probably the answer. I was kind of thinking about that. Rotation is always the answer. It's always the answer. And Misha hit on it. Delayed <laughs> planning is a big thing, especially something like our rescue grass Misha has seen. But also we've done trials deep tillage which obviously that's not going to go over very well for our no-tillers out there. Yeah. And it also goes back to the previous crop. We have a lot of custom harvesters in the state now. If we don't make sure they don't go through their machines and clean it, we're going to get what they had in their field previously. So yeah, some of it's cultural where you just simple start off with clean seed, make sure you're not spreading it with machinery, combines, all that goes into the equation. But like you said, we all focus on, herbicides <laughs> we're not we're not good uh, at balance humans just aren't we're not i don't that's what i think and i'm i'm not a sociologist but just we're not we don't know how to balance strategies for whatever reason i don't know why that is 
Well, I think farmers also and ranchers too are always excited about the newest, most effective thing and they want to okay. use it and they use yeah. it. Just use it till it's used up, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. So I come from a farming background too. And so I, I kind of know how that goes. That's a good uh, leeway into the next yeah. topic. You say new strategies or new options, uh, something new on the table. Misha, obviously the coaxium system, the new traded wheat. <laughs> using the aggressor herbicide and the oxygen traded wheat varieties. What have you been seeing in the last couple of years on it? Yeah, that is a perfect segue. The, the newest in most crops seems to be the addition of a herbicide tolerant trait. Not a lot of uh, new sites of action and chemistries coming out, but we are engineering or breeding our uh, crops to be able to spray new herbicides. So, Coaxium wheat production system is the second herbicide system that we have. So Clearfield was first, and it allows us to spray Quizalifop under the trade name Aggressor over the top of coaxium wheat. So if you're looking at wheat varieties, it will have an AX on the end of it, and that will tell you it has the trait. It's not a, a new active ingredient. Josh, you probably know Quizalifot better than me from your work in canola. It has been sold under a trade name Assure 2, and it's a grass-killing herbicide, so it's not going to touch our broadleaf weeds. It has no residual or very little residual, so it's only going to control grasses that are up. We've been looking at it on the research side for four years here, and it does a good job cleaning up our grasses. The exception would be Italian ryegrass because Italian ryegrass has already developed resistance because Axial, which we have been using to control ryegrass, it, it no longer, we've developed resistance to it. So we basically also developed resistance to aggressor. They're all group one herbicides. So they kill in the same way. Some folks have been waiting to invest in the technology because of varieties, maybe not having something suited for their region. Um, there's going to be a lot more commercial varieties uh, coming out. And our wheat breeder, Dr. Brett Carver, is working on getting the trait into OSU germplasm. So uh, at, at some time, I don't I don't know exactly when in a few years we'll start to see OSU selling the trait in orange. So that will be good. Yeah. And like you said, the genetics, the farmers around here are looking for uh, aren't in the varieties necessarily that we first saw. It all stems back from Colorado. Right. So this whole system started with the Colorado wheat growers and they got in their Plains Gold, kind of the OGI of Colorado involved. And then, Lehman Grain, LCS, got involved. So we got some genetics from them. Uh, so we are having more options out there. I think Crop Plan's got some. Uh, West Branch Genna probably won't be too far behind. And like you said, Dr. Carver is, hopefully within three, six years, we might have some from OSU. Uh, going back, like you said, it's only going to control grasses. We don't have any residual on it. But there are some things that, if we are looking at tank mixing, some stuff to stay away from, isn't there? Yeah, so we can only tank mix with, of course, we like, if we're killing our grasses, we also want to kill our broadleafs. And we can only tank mix with certain uh, formulations of our synthetic auxins. So we need to 
consult the aggressor label and make sure that there isn't going to be some antagonism from an auxin that we might want to put in the tank. That's mostly going to be the mean formulations of 2,4-D. And so using ester formulations of even MCPE uh, instead of MCPA, we're able to avoid that antagonism. And so in the antagonism part, is that just reducing the control? It's reducing the on the grass control side from my understanding. So you're yeah. correct. Staying away from amines. Esters, we don't seem to have as many issues. Uh, we did a little bit of antagonism work uh, this summer. And I don't know, it's a little early. But yes, it does look like when you tank mix the amine formulations that you're seeing a reduction in the grass control versus just going out with the grass herbicide alone. So I think that'll be a little bit of a challenge for us. We don't like to make that many passes with our herbicides. We like to throw everything in in the spring is kind of our pattern, especially if we're not investing solely for grain or dual purpose. I want to say using that aggressor, the varieties we have have two genes of tolerance, which is like our Clearfield Plus. Now, I want to say there's a third gene that there's hopefully some time to get full re resistance to it, not just tolerance. So with that tolerance of this herbicide, there is a timing range that we're allowed to apply. We don't want to go too early or too late, right? Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up. So I think this is probably the most important takeaway that I've learned in the last four years. And I... I don't completely understand it perfectly, but I have received calls from folks who have invested in the system, having some crop response that they're not thrilled with. So, so far it looks like it's on the back end that once we get close to stem elongation joining, we can see some injury issues if we go out late spring close to joining. If you look at the label, it will tell you to make an application prior to joining, but we all know stuff happens and sometimes we're not timely. It's incredibly important that we are timely and we're not going out too close to that joining period is what I'm seeing. Yeah, I think the early is at least five leaf. Okay, uh, I couldn't remember. And they want to say... On the fall applications, if you do have a heavy infestation that you need to justify a fall application, instead of using like the MSO, methylated seed oil or crop oil, just to go with the non-onyx or factor. Yes. And then to heat it up in the spring, go ahead and use one of those oils. Yes. COC, MSO. We've, we played around with many of the adjuvants. They all seem to do a pretty good job, but I think you're right for the fall. I think they're pushing NIS. So yeah, it's it's a learning experience. We're still uh, learning, but when you've invested a, a significant amount into the seed into the herbicide, you don't want to learn. You don't want to have to learn too much. So we're trying to share what we have learned. And I again, I think not going out too late is something that will be very important to Oklahoma. I don't know that other states are seeing that, but we're probably the the furthest south state that's looking at the technology, we warm up a lot quicker and we just have a different environment than some of these other northern states. Sounds like you need a chemistry degree 
to do any of this. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds very complicated. You can't be a lawyer to read the labels, I think, sometimes. Oh, yeah. yeah. I know. I always tell Josh, like, I just, like, tell me if it can be, when it needs to be grace. So, like, I don't want to read this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, a lot of calls I answer are just me reading the labels. <laughs> but, I mean, I understand. I'm not judging because uh, they're not always fun to read. Yeah. So speaking of labels and grazing restrictions, yeah. Dana, uh, some of our products, we have grazing restrictions that are often overlooked. Yeah. And some of our more common products like Axial, especially all of our guys battling ryegrass, there's a 30-day grazing restriction on that product. We often advocate for those fall applications. That's something we need to look out for. Even our Clearfield Plus system, if we're going after feral rye, it has a 30-day grazing restriction. And so if we're really after that fall grazing, we might need to look at some of those ALS products. Uh, something like PowerFlex only has a seven-day grazing restriction. So that's something overlooked, but it can cause damage. So can you, so, okay, this is a person that doesn't know much about this, but do you, I guess you would have to spray it before you put cattle out because people aren't going to, I mean, it kind of goes away. I mean, yeah. are you going to pull them all off? I mean, yeah, some people do that. You know, you move pastures. If you're really stocked appropriately, you could, you know, move several different pastures in one season. So, I mean, is, is, can, can you spray it when the wheat is, you know, shorter, shortly before you turn out? And that's what we, any crop we're looking at, spraying earlier okay. is always the most economical. Okay. So hopefully we can get out there when the wheat's small, the weeds are small and have that period before we should be turning out on wheat anyways. So I know some guys kick out probably a little on the early side, but we want that wheat to get some size to it because when it does go dormant, it's not going to be growing any more forage for you. Mm -hmm. So we want to get that plant growing to get that forage. But we start looking at that. It's kind of a safety risk. And that's why some guys just don't manage their wheat till the spring when they pull off. So, and that gives us, bigger issues on control because uh, we have a rye plant that's well tillered that's hardened off it's a lot harder to control uh, misha yeah. is there any other issues with like the aggressor on forage or application timing around grazing i'll be honest that most of the fields that i've walked applications have gone out in systems where they weren't being grazed. So I haven't had a lot of interaction. Um, if you look at the label, there is one statement on grazing to allow seven to 14 days after pulling cattle off to make an application. And you'll see that with many herbicide labels. Basically, most of the products we're spraying, they move in the living system of that plant, the actively growing areas. So we need the plant actively growing. We pull off right away. Those plants have been stressed. We need to have new growth come on to have an effective application. But I like what you all said about our winter annuals. You can't really beat the fall. Uh, once they've gone that semi-dormancy period, they're not the same plant that they were in the fall than they are in the spring. And Many times our control can be cut in half if we wait till the spring. So I like that it's more convenient on the animal side to spray in the fall because I think we are going to have better kill of most of our winter annual grass weeds in the fall as well. 
a great example of that, I think, of rescue grass. Yes. (laughs) And that's a huge difference from fall application to spring. Yes. Even if something as simple as a cheat or a downy brome, uh, we get better control in the fall. I know even pushing late fall, we have the same issue. You say actively growing weeds. I've seen some skips where beyond didn't get the ride just because we're spraying when it's too cold. Yep. And so looking at those those temperatures and having an actively growing plant for several days around that application timing, very beneficial. That's right. I need to step in here because that aggressor technology, that those varieties are protected, right? Yeah. So as you're purchasing that seed, you'll be signing a licensing agreement. If you are going to spray Quisalifop, it does have to be uh, the aggressor formulation, just like any herbicide tolerant system, cannot save seed. So really, if you've used Clearfield, it's going to be kind of similar as far as the nuts and bolts go with licensing. But um, yeah, it is protected technology. We have to follow some extra rules. And something I noticed about this new coaxium uh, wheat production system is they're housing it all on one website, Accelerate. Okay for the seed purchase and the chemical purchase to make sure they're not getting any of that brown bag seed out there. So they're learned a few things from maybe BASF and the Clearfield system, but they're trying to keep it under watchful eye, make sure they're, they're having the germplasm out there that they want out there. That's right. Misha, you got any projects going on this fall that you'd like to share? Yeah. We always have projects. I have, Four grad students right now. I don't think I'll ever have more than four. It's a third. (laughs) I don't know. I know some of these labs get pretty big, but uh, I like to spend time with my students and walk fields with them. And I think if I had any more, I wouldn't be able to do that. But uh, one of them is very closely related. The newest one is looking at some of these varieties and the tolerant, the coaxium varieties and their tolerance to aggressor. We have a student who's working on Metribu's intolerance in wheat, which some people are excited about. Some people don't want to hear anything about it. And what is uh, that? What is that, Misha? Tell me what Metribu's in. It's a component of the product Axiom, which I mentioned earlier. You can also go out with it alone. The reason why I say some people don't want to talk about it is because it, it can cause injury in wheat and has a link to uh, varieties where some are more susceptible than others. Still, we don't have a lot of new herbicides coming. And so I think it is important to go back and make sure we're using some of our older chemistries uh, if there's an opportunity. Brome control, rescue grass, Josh, it's the worst one. I don't know what to say about it. We'll always be working on it. Uh, it's just a tough one. And we're always working on ryegrass as well, documenting resistance, love for folks to send in seed. We have many counties that we've documented where we have resistance, kind of, I'm looking at a map, just kind of central, and then also moving kind of southwest. So Caddo, Canadian, even down to Cotton, Tillman County, those are where some of the positives are coming in. So, so there resist, there's weeds that are resistant in those areas. Yeah, ryegrass uh, resistant to uh, axial and now aggressor. Those are some of uh, kind of the main projects. Being on kind of a fun uh, project with Colorado State and 
Kansas State, it's, it's not really that fun when you're in the field doing it. I was doing it yesterday. I felt very pregnant and hot and I don't know. But we're looking at chaff lining, which is a technique that the Australians have come up with where you direct the chaff that normally would be spreading weed seed in your chaff behind the combine. You have like a chute that kind of directs it into a line. And the concept is, is that all those weed seeds and material that are so closely condensed that they compete with each other and not every weed can survive. So that's, I guess, one of the harvest weed seed practices. Might sound crazy, but we kind of have to come up with these crazy ideas because our herbicides, they're not bringing us very far. I remember, it was before my time even, but working with Dr. Peeper, the previous small grain specialist. Yeah. He even had a setup where as a chaff collector on a gleaner combine. I know Trent loves gleaners, but <laughs> uh, even looking at that, you know, probably 30 years ago, but uh, there's a bunch of things that we have to go back to and see if we can get them back into our systems, not just rely on herbicides and herbicides alone. Yeah. But I think we've been uh, talking long enough. I uh, greatly appreciate Dr. Manu Cherry for being here today. Uh, you can contact her through multiple ways as well, uh, email, Twitter, and everything else. So got any questions, go to your county office. And thanks for listening to the Extension Experience podcast. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed what you've heard. If you would like to hear more or follow up on the discussed topics, please reach out to your local county extension agent. OSU has a presence in all 77 counties with the educators eager to assist you. Also, please consider checking the description for links to our social media pages and further information pertinent to the conversation. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon.